in your Bibles to Psalm 123. Songs for singing on the way to church. Church is a place for mercy. Psalm 123, we'll start in verse 1. And to you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. To look at this song today, we're going to start in verse 4. I think it would be uh, helpful for us to understand the end of it first. Verse 4 says, Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. My soul is another word for saying my life, the depths of my being. And he uses this redundant word, is exceedingly filled. In other words, I'm, it's like saying I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's like saying I'm filled to the rim. I'm overwhelmed with what in verse 4? The scorn of those who are at ease. We don't use the word scorn very much, so I feel the need to de define it for you. It means to criticize. In particular, it means to mock somebody. We do a lot of mocking. We, we don't use the word scorn when we say it, but we mock a lot of people in today's society uh, to make fun of them. I have to say that my family, uh, we enjoy that too much, that mocking uh, that we do. Uh, hopefully, and not scornfully, not in a mean way, but I'm sure it crosses the boundary at times. But what the song is about is a, is a man or a woman, a person who, is, who has been scorned, they have been criticized and mocked to the point that they're full of it, they're tired of it, they're, they're exceedingly tired of it, you could say. It says that those that mock them are those who are at ease. This is speaking of people who have things easy, people who have wealth, maybe. Uh, maybe people who have prestige or power, and so things come easy to them, and so because things come easy to them, maybe somebody with wealth would make uh, fun of somebody who's poor. Maybe somebody with power would make uh, fun of somebody who's getting pushed around by their job or by society. I think sometimes a person at ease could even be a person who has their health. Somebody who's always been healthy doesn't understand somebody who's sick. Somebody who's always had good health doesn't understand when somebody's down in their back or, or, or something along, along those lines. And so they would be tempted to scorn, to criticize, make fun of those who have things harder than they do. One of the surest signs of true wickedness is a person who's going through struggles and mocking somebody going through the same struggles. But one of the signs of religion is a person who is at ease, who looks down and mocks somebody who has a struggle, whether it's financially or health-wise or any other, any other way. He says, I'm filled with those who are scorning me, who are at ease. They have everything so easy, and I have everything so hard, and yet those people still make fun of me. You can't say, oh man, oh man, amen, say, oh me, <laughs> oh me. It goes on in verse 4 and says, with the contempt of the proud. Not only are these people mocking me, but they have contempt towards me. Uh, the word contempt is another word that we don't generally use. It, it means to look down on somebody, to despise them. It means that you feel somebody is beneath you. Somebody is worthless. And let me define worthless. Worth less than you. <laughs> you feel that they're, they're worth less than you. And so if you're the recipient of this, you feel like people are always looking down on you. Uh, actually, in the definition, in the original language, it has a connotation of this word contempt. And it defines it as looking down on somebody. 
but then it gives it from three perspectives. This, I found this interesting. I've never seen this before in Bible definitions, but it gives this, this type of judgment of looking down on somebody from three perspectives. It does so from evil. Uh, in other words, you're looking down on them with evil intention. It does so from prosperity. In other words, you're looking down on them because you're prosperous and they're not. And it does so from judgment. As if though you think you are better than they are, you're more righteous than they are, you're more moral than they are. And so you look down on them and despise them because you think they're somehow beneath you because they're not as godly as you. Sadly reminds me much of the American church. Looking down on somebody is this person, it says, who has pride. Look at it, with the contempt of the pride. They have pride in themselves, and so they think they are really good, really godly, really well off, and so they look down on others and don't think much of them. If you're in a relationship with somebody, the way that you would know somebody holds you in contempt, let me give you three examples. First of all, verbally. If you're in a relationship with somebody and they look down at you, they would not listen to you. They would interrupt you and they would finish your sentences. In your communication with them, if they think you're less than them, they would complete your sentences for you, interrupt you, and not listen when you're speaking. Cindy and I often, when we, were, when we are with other couples, it's usually the, the man that we see do this, he, he cuts his wife off when she's talking or he obviously pays no attention to his wife when she's talking. We know that these are early signs that there is trouble in this marriage because that man has decided to look down on his wife and he thinks in some way he's better than her and he has contempt for her. All the men in this church, we all know our wives are better than us. Amen? <laughs> I don't say that with jest. I say that with sincerity. In a nonverbal way, you would know this contempt by uh, the appearance of the face. Usually, it may come uh, from a young person to their parent, and they would roll their eyes. That means they think you can't tell them what to do. They're better than you. Maybe they would use sarcasm or, or sigh deeply because they don't want to hear what you have to say. Relationally, nothing done would ever be good enough. And so a person who finds contempt with another person would treat them as an opponent or even as an enemy and come against them. So this song is about a person or a group of people who are feeling this scorn, this being made fun of by people who are at ease, and this contempt, this being judged or looked down on by people who are proud. And he's not only just feeling it, he's filled with it. He has been worn out with it. It's overcome his soul, and it has literally broken his spirit. He's broke down by this treatment from other people, outside people, who have just scorned him and found him in contempt and put him down. And so now let's go back to verse 1 and see where the song begins. Because you know the state, the condition of this person singing, singing this song back in verse 1. He says, Unto you I will lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Unto you I will lift up my eyes. is a picture of a person who gets so broken down, they finally get so broken, they finally look up to God. My pro senior, many of you may have known him, used to always say, sometimes a man has to get knocked down so low, how low, low enough that he would finally look up at God. And that's what's happened to the singers of this song. They've been beaten down by those who've judged them, and now they're finally lifting their eyes to the one place that should have been lifted many times before, but now it's to him who dwells in the heavens. I find it interesting the word dwell. Uh, we would think of living somewhere, but literally the word dwell means to sit or to sit down. That'll have more meaning later in this, in this passage. But the, he's lifting his eyes to the one who sits in the heavens, who sit down in the heavens. And of course, 
in verse 2, we see that that is the Lord. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of masters, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of a mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. He says, My eyes look to the Lord our God. I lift up my eyes to the Lord who is God. And then he makes this comparison in verse 2. He says, as a servant looks to the hand of their master, and as a maid to the hand of her mistress, until, so my eyes look to the Lord our God, until he has mercy on us. So the same way that a servant looks to the hand, the hand of his master, and a maid to the hand of her mistress, we look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. The picture here is twofold. One is looking. Where are you looking? And the other one is to the hand. To the hand of the master, the servant looks. To the hand of the mistress, the maid looks. And to the hand of God, you and I would look. In other words, we cannot get mercy on our own. To find mercy, we must look to the hand of God. It only comes from him. We cannot obtain it on our own. The same way a servant can't go get what they want or have what they want, their master has to give it to them. And so now in verse 3, he repeats this two more times. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. It's not often in the Bible that a person of prayer or a song would repeat something like this, but he is three times here saying to God, with his eyes on the Lord, have mercy on us, Lord. And then in the end of verse 3, he concludes himself in this contempt, for he says, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. In other words, we started with verse 4 because I wanted you to appreciate the contempt the senior is going through from other people as they are looking, being looked down upon by this host of other people being made fun of. But when we see the end of verse 3, we realize that the psalmist is also, as he's begun to pray, or as he's begun to sing, it turned his eyes towards the Lord and seeing the Lord sitting on his throne in heaven and began to cry for mercy, this singer has now realized he too has contempt towards someone, but it's not a mere person that he has contempt for. It is God. He's saying, not only am I receiving contempt from others, but I'm filled with contempt for my God. Sometimes we as humans need to go through something before we can see ourselves. And that's what he's done here. He's begun to see himself. And he's found contempt with God. He's found that somehow God's not being the God that he wants him to be. Many times people are not happy with God for their circumstances, either things he has done or things God has not done. This is why people love religion. Again, I, as often do, I use religion in a negative connotation. Religion allows you to create a God that you can control. A God of your own making. A God that many people in today's society will bargain with and make deals with. I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. I'll do this for you and you help my kids turn out all right. I'll do this for you and you help bless my finances and make me rich or bless my business. The God of religion is a God that you create and it is a negotiation on your terms where you determine the kind of God you want him to be. And so you want to control him in a certain way. But the God of the Bible, the God who sits on the throne in the heavens, you cannot control. And you and I both, from birth, hate that God. Uh, I could go into a long litany of verses proving to you that you hate him, that you came against him, you were enmity against him. You did not, nor could you, turn to the ways of God on your own. We deserve, therefore, because we despise God, we deserve wrath. John 3.36 says, we know John 3.16, don't we? But just a few verses later is John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God sits on him. Wrath is that holy anger of God. And to be blasphemous against God is most of us would never say, I'm, I'm a person of blasphemy. You'd never characterize yourself that way, nor would we each other. I would never say, Eric, you're a blasphemer, or Brad, you're a blasphemer. But to be blasphemous is to say something out loud about God that is not true. To say something about him that, that he is not, or to say something that he is that is not true. It must be spoken to be blasphemous, and it must be spoken either in your mind or out loud. I'll give you some examples of blasphemy. God, you don't love me. God, you don't care about me. God, you're not taking care of me. God, you don't know what you're doing. We'd say it this way, what are you doing? <laughs> or in these terms, God, you have left me. We would soften it by saying, making the question, God, have you left me? And then he would say things like this, God must have forsaken me, put me on the shelf, or this would not have happened to me. And I would cry out to you as your preacher in agreement with the psalmist of this song, oh, we too are exceedingly filled with contempt. When we would think of our God and put him in those positions far beneath his character, it is not only blasphemous, but it is from a position of contempt that seems to say, we know better what we should have gotten than you do, and you somehow messed up, dear Lord. We would never say it out loud that harshly, but we certainly would think it when we ask all the questions of why. I want to move to the application uh, now, and to get there, I want to show you a picture of the the mercy seat, because in this psalm we're asking three times for the mercy of God in order to give you an application of this, we need to go and find ourselves standing before the mercy seat. The mercy seat, as you know, is, is the Ark of the Covenant. That literally, the mercy seat would be the, the lid. That box there is the, the Ark of the Covenant, but the lid of that Ark is the mercy seat. It would have been found in the Holy of Holies. It was inside the veil. Every person could not have gone there. No near mortal, normal people could not go in there. Only the high priest could go in there. And he could only go in there once a year. Think about that. One time a year, only one day out of the year, could the high priest go in there where this mercy seat, this Ark of the Covenant was. It was made of pure gold. And it had a crown. You can't see the crown very good in this picture, but it had a crown around the edges of it. The poles were slid in there from each side. As you remember in the Old Testament, the children of Israel would carry the ark. They were not supposed to touch the ark or they would have died. And there's examples of that in the Old Testament. So they were lifted by the poles there. I chose this particular picture. I don't know that, that this is an accurate picture of the ark, but I chose this particular one because it seemed to take the cherubim that on either side and use their wings to sort of form a back because I want you to have a visual imagery of the ark of the covenant as a chair, in other words, as a throne because this is the throne of God. In particular, this is the throne of Jesus. This Ark of the Covenant is the place where Jesus sits. And under where he sits is the mercy seat, the place of mercy. His throne has written on it the seat of mercy. You say, what kind of God is Jesus? What kind of Lord is he? He is a person who, when he built his throne, the place where he is to sit, he made sure that it was a throne 
characterized by mercy, so much so you would say to, to your children, get out, that's my chair. He would say, get up, I'm sitting there on the seat of mercy. I'm the king of mercy. I rule in mercy. I reign in mercy. I'll be known forever as the God of mercy. That's who he is. It is his throne. It's not just a place where he sleeps like, like we sit in our lazy chair because he never sleeps nor slumbers. The Bible is clear to say that over and over again. It is a place where he sits when he rules. It is a ruling place. It is a picture of who he is and what he wants to do and what he does. When we define mercy in modern days, we define it so simply we miss out on it, I think. When I was the father of little children, I remember in particular Maggie and Abigail were little. And I was trying to teach them mercy. I had a very shallow definition of mercy. And I understood mercy simply as you not getting what you deserve. And we had certain things. If you did certain things in our house, you'd get a spanking. And you got one lick for every year of age. So if you were five, you got five licks. Six, you got six licks for your spankings. And, and so happy birthday, you're getting another lick. You know, that's how it went in our house. And so we would sometimes try to teach mercy. And what we would do is that when you'd get in trouble, you'd be told to go to our bedroom, sit on the bed, and you got there, and you knew that you're getting, you're six, you're getting six licks. And occasionally we'd come in there, and talk, we didn't do it very often, but occasionally we'd come in there and talk about the, the crime committed, you know, what, what had happened, what you had done. And, and they're all already crying, anticipating, you know, the discipline, anticipating what's about to happen and on those rare occasions we would look them in the eyes and say I love you today I'm going to have mercy on you and they quickly learned what that meant that they did not get the spanking that day there was mercy but mercy is a lot deeper than that and so I want to give you just in application some some things that you would find if you were able to walk into the Holy of Holies and stand before the seat of mercy, the throne of Jesus, what you would find there. Number one, when you come to the place of mercy, you will find forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very much needed thing in today's society, especially financially. A lot of people have a lot of financial debt, our country included and in, in debt, you learn this. When you're in debt, you have no freedom. You're in a type of bondage to this debt, whatever it is. Financially, if you have a car debt, then you're in bondage to pay that payment every month, every, for, for sometimes years, until you pay it off. This debt bonds you and controls you. You have no relief from it. There's this weight upon you. There's no rest in it. There's this weight of burden on you from this debt. I read a study some years ago about that they did this trial of parents, and they had parents in their home write down certain things that the children would do wrong, and if you did these wrong, this would be the appropriate penalty and post it on the refrigerator. In other words, if you, if you talk back, you get... Three licks and posted that on the refrigerator. If you hit your brother or your sister, you get two licks and they posted that on the refrigerator. And they found that what would happen in this study is the children, once they knew the consequences of the crime, if I can call it that, that they, after they did something wrong, they felt such a sense of burden for the wrong they had done, they would get to the place where they would actually ask for the penalty. They would say, I, I mistreated my brother. I, I want you to go ahead and give me whatever it was that the refrigerator said they were supposed to get. They desired to be released from the bondage so much that even little children would ask for the, the consequence of it. True mercy must start with forgiveness. If we're going to find the mercy of God, we must find the forgiveness of God. Look at this passage, Psalm 103, verses 8 through 17. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. 
For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's, that's the first point I want you to get. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far has he, how much has he forgiven you? As far as the east is from the west, there's no end, is it? It keeps going and going. He's taking your sin further and further and further and further away from you. Read on. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He, he, remembers, your, he remembers your dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. He's, he's, he's talking about the shortness of your life. He remembers your just organized dust. He made you from the dust of the earth, and you're going to return to the dust of the earth. And he says, you're just like a flower. You grow up one day, and the wind blows, and you're gone. That's how short your life is. It's like, poof. It's like the, the wind blows, and you're gone. And that phrase that comes after that is, is key to point out. And the place remembers it, or a better translation would be, remembers you no more. Your life is like that, and you're gone. And the place where you live, they don't even remember you anymore. You're gone from their memory. Read on. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He's making a comparison there. Your life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's like a flower. The wind blows and it's gone. But the mercy of God lasts forever. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And this is the sign of the covenant that God is going to do between you and me in the New Testament. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. What is the sign of the new covenant that you have been saved, that you have experienced the new covenant? You can know the forgiveness of God. David says it in Psalms chapter 51. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. <laughs> he says, blot it out. He means wipe it out. He says, wash me. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. What he says, my sin is always before me. If you don't wash me, I will remember this sin forever and ever. God, if you don't cleanse me, I will remember this sin. It will be in front of me and in my mind forever and ever. That's why in the Old Testament there is the scapegoat illustration. Where men would bring the lamb before their family and they would lay their hands on the head of the lamb and there was a representation of a transference of your guilt to the guilt of the animal. He said in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4. And you shall put your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for you to make atonement for you. And you shall take the bullet and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation and lay your hands on the head of it. This laying of your hands on the head of the animal that's going to be sacrificed was a transference of your guilt to that animal. And then that animal would be slain. Its blood would be shed so that your guilt could be cleansed. Forgiveness could be found. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. If you were to come into the mercy seat, into the room where God's mercy seat is today, what you would find there is forgiveness. More forgiveness than even the church likes to give out. Forgiveness for whatever it is somebody has done. Some of these verses I read from David were after he had committed murder and adultery. Murder and adultery. Two heinous crimes 
against the living God. And here's David crying out to God for mercy. And he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me clean. Cleanse me. Or else my sin will always be before me. Church is to be a place of mercy. And if church is a place of mercy, in, in, in the order of Jesus, like Jesus, we would be a place that has the ability to give forgiveness. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to take our sins upon him so that he could pay the price for us, so that he could give us forgiveness forever. That's why when it speaks of Jesus, it talks about him sitting down. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down on the mercy seat. He sat down on that throne, the Ark of the Covenant, because he had committed one sacrifice for sins that would purge us from our sins forever. It was done, and so he sat down. The mercy place is the place of forgiveness. Number two, when you come to the place of mercy, you find propitiation. I like to talk about this word propitiation. Maybe you've heard me do it before. A lot of preachers and teachers today won't talk about the doctrine of propitiation. New versions of the Bible try to use a different word for this word propitiation. The reason we try today not to speak of it is because nobody today likes a God of wrath. Nobody today likes an angry God. But if you understand the doctrine of propitiation, it is so good. It is so precious. I want to give you a definition of propitiation. Jesus, by offering himself as a sacrifice, by substituting himself for us, and actually bearing the punishment which should have been ours, satisfied the Father. More clearly, satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus gives you forgiveness because he paid your debt. When it talks about propitiation, it talks about satisfying the anger of God because of your debt. It's one thing to have your debt paid off, but what if they're still mad at you? you know? Paid them off, but still mad, you know. It's, it's like there's still something between you and your relationship. When we, when we learn about this word propitiation, it means he takes away any, any emotional things that could have been there in your relationship because of the debt that you owe. When we talk about words like reconciliation and, and substitution, there's this, this transference between us and God, but propitiation is only Godward. It is Jesus appeasing God's anger, His holy wrath because of our sin. It is God dealing with God for you. It is propitious means that he appeases this anger of God. It's the same word translated mercy seat in the New Testament. It's the same word for that lid of that Ark of the Covenant. And so I've said it to you before this way, and when you look at that lid, that mercy seat, it is a propitiatorium, if I could say it that way. It is the place where the wrath of God is dealt with for you. When Jesus was about to go to the cross and he kept praying, God, let this cup pass from me. I don't know if you remember this, but when you're on uh, an Easter and a sunrise service, I preached on the cup of the wrath of God. Anybody remember that? I preached on how the, the wrath of God is often portrayed in a cup, and it is something that was to be drank. And Jesus, as he's going to the cross, he keeps telling God, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. He's about to go to the cross, and he's about to face the drinking of the wrath of God for you and me. The holy anger of God for all our sin. It's more than just the penalty of our sin. It's the emotional anger and rightful anger that God has because of our sin. That's why Jesus went through the things he went through before the cross. You say he was sweating drops of blood when he was weeping in his prayer there before the cross. He was not afraid of the cross. He was not afraid of two, two wooden beams. He was not afraid of Roman nails in his hands. No, that's not what Jesus was sweating drops of blood for. He was 
praying. He was, he was looking for the, the wrath of God to be poured out upon him. It was God's fury. If I can use that Bible word. We don't use it much today. The, the fury of God. It was God's fury that he prayed that God would keep from him. Jesus took the Father's wrath for you and your sin and your hatred of God. And when he was finished and he finished on the cross, remember when he gave up the ghost, it says that he cried out, it is finished. Just to say that it was paid in full. If you turn, you know, when you drink a full cup and you finally get to the bottom of it and you finish, you turn upside down and say, it's done. That's what he did. He fully drank the wrath of God for you so that there is no more wrath for you from heaven, from the throne of propitiation. Romans 3.25, when God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Jesus fully satisfied God's holy anger, the wrath of God against you. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like God's mad at you? I mean, just be honest. Do you ever think, boy, God's mad at me and, and he's going to get me. I've heard churches teach this sometimes. God's going to get you if you do that. Have problems in your life caused you to wonder, is God mad at me? Is God getting me? Because he's angry with me because I did this back there or I did that or the other. The doctrine of propitiation says all the anger of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross and if you ask the question, is God mad at me? I would say no. How can you say no, preacher, because the anger of God, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus drunk the cup of the wrath of God. God's not mad at you because Jesus is your propitiation. And to think otherwise is a it's one of those fiery darts of the devil. It's one of those tricks of the devil. It's one of those things where the devil leads you into blasphemy. Whereby you would think things that are not true of the character of God. You would think things that are not true of who God actually is. That's blasphemous. Maybe you can say that. God's mad at me. That's why this happened to me. God's mad at me. That's why I'm going through this. But these are not the character of God. How do you know a preacher? Because his throne is called the seat of mercy. His throne, the place where he sits in the heavens, is called the seat of mercy. Why is it called the seat of mercy? Because it is his propitiatorium. It is the place where he sat down when he had finished drinking the cup of wrath of God for you. And for you to think otherwise that God is angry with you and God is mad at you and God is doing things to get you because he's mad at you is a is a blasphemy against his very character and who he is. Men and women today who are most miserable in their condition of sin are, are being asked by the devil to believe that God is angry with them rather than to believe that God is propitious towards them. That's the seeds of the devil in your mind when you begin to question are you having happen in your life what is happening because God is angry with you when everything in the Bible teaches that Jesus is propitiation for you Jesus took God's wrath for you and for there to be some anger left for you when Jesus went to the cross for you it's not only wrong doctrine it's an accusation against the very character of God and all that he's done for you and so when you cry in this song if we could sing this song I wish we had one, Brad, that we could sing where we cry out to God three times for mercy. God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on us. What you're crying for is the propitiation of Jesus. Let me fall in a place where I find the propitiation of Jesus, where the anger of God is removed, and there's no more anger of God for me any longer. Well, Jesus drank that cup on the cross. The cry for mercy is a cry for propitiation. Number three, when you come to the place of mercy, you will find love. You'll find love. If you don't need this part, you just phase out for a minute, but I got some people here I need to preach to. 
If you go back in verse 4 of our text, you find that this, this singer is, is beaten down. They're exceedingly filled. That means they're exceedingly tired of people making fun of them and looking down on them. And I don't know if you've ever went through an experience like that where people are making fun of you and people are looking down on you, but I have on those occasions gone through that experience. And when you go through that experience, here's where you get to. You get to the place where you literally believe this. Nobody loves me. You ever been there? Nobody loves me. Nobody really cares about me. No, nobody even likes me. It's why this whole like thing is such a big thing on the internet. Because people who feel unloved are looking for somebody to love them. People who are feeling so unloved are looking for one like or five likes or ten likes. To, if ten people would give me a thumbs up on the internet, I would feel like everybody loves me and everything's going to be alright. So people are working really hard to get likes because look what they're saying is nobody loves me. I'm held in contempt. I'm being looked down on. I don't feel very loved. Do you know that Jesus knows what it's like to be held in contempt? To be looked down on or despised? If you go back to the season of the cross, when he's going to the cross, he's held in captivity along with those other people in jail with him who were real crooks. They were, they were real thieves and murderers. And they go out to the public opinion and they say, who would you have us release to you? Because they always let one go free. They would try to show some sense of mercy there even in that day and let one criminal go free and they, they, they come out to the crowd and they say, do you want us to release Barabbas, this murderer and thief, or do you want us to release Jesus? What does the crowd do? The crowd begins to chat, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Jesus got no locks. Nobody cried, let Jesus free. They were crying, let Barabbas free. Why is that? Because everybody there on that day despised and rejected Jesus. They wanted no part of him. They looked down on him. He was a man of shame, a man to be pitied. You say, well, there was his family and there were those close apostles who really still stood by him, did they? Even Peter, who could have been said to be the closest of Jesus' followers. During the time that he's going to the cross and hanging on the cross, during that very time, Peter, you know the story, Peter denies him. Not once, but three times. Three times he rejects him. Jesus is knowing that sense of rejection from all those men, from the leaders of society, from the leaders of the church, and even from his own family and friends, from his own apostles. He's knowing all that rejection. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He had, hid, as it were, his our faces from him, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. You ever think about that? When Jesus was going to the cross, he was identifying with you about what it feels like to feel, I use the word feel on purpose, F-E-E-L, to feel unloved. You ever thought about that? He was going to the cross, and he was feeling what you feel when you feel unloved. And all was it from mere humans that Jesus, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, felt unloved? What about his father, his heavenly father? You could say, well, he still had the father's love. Well, he may have had the father's love, but I wonder, did he feel it? Because the father, the, the father could have stopped the cross at any time, right? He could have Put a, put a stop to this and said, enough! He could have yelled from the heavens, enough! I mean, he could have sent a, a, a host of angels, the Bible would say a legion, a, a multitude of angels, and put all those people in their place. But he could have just spoken one word, because we know that this same Father, when he spoke a word in the Old Testament, with one word spoken, he created the, the sun and the moon. Right? In creation, with another word spoken, he put boundaries on the ocean. He, he encased the ocean in its corridors where it cannot escape. With one word, he could have said one word, and the cross would have stopped. It would have ended. Jesus 
You say, why do you think he felt this way? Because of what he cried on the cross. He cried out those famous words, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I present to you that Jesus even felt forsaken by his Father. He even felt unloved by his Father. If you're here today and you feel unloved, Jesus knows by the cross what that feels like. But to understand the love of God, you must understand the wrath of God. I'll try to explain it to you. If a man is outside, he sees a fire burning over there in the forest, and he runs and jumps in the fire until he dies, we'd say, yeah, he's crazy. He lost his mind, right? But if a man runs by that same fire and he jumps in that same fire to save his little boy, we would say that man loved that little boy. People say they don't want to believe in a God of wrath. They only, only want to believe in a God who is loving. But to know the depths of the love of God, you must understand the depths of the wrath of God. The hot, burning, fiery anger of God must be understood for you to really understand how much Jesus loves you. Because when Jesus came to the cross, he came into that hot, burning fire of the wrath of God. The fury of God came upon him, and he took that for you because he loves you that much. Jesus went to the cross to save you from the wrath of God because he loves you. You must understand the wrath of God to appreciate the love of God. God knows how it feels to to believe that nobody loves you. He knows exactly how that feels. So he went to great lengths to prove to you that he loves you. Jesus loves you. If you could stand before his throne today, the mercy seat, the thing that would overwhelm you and consume you would be, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. A cry for mercy is a cry for the love of God. Lord, have mercy is to say, Lord, I want to know you love me again. Because he never stopped loving you. It's why he went to the cross. Because he loves you. Number four, when you come to the place of mercy, you find Jesus on his throne. If you were to come into the Holy of Holies today in, in, in heaven and see that Ark of the Covenant, that, that mercy seat, that throne of God, what you would find there is Jesus sitting there. Jesus sitting there. I want us to go back to our passage real quick for just a second before I get into this very much. Go back there to verse, verse 2. There's something interesting in this song. It says, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters and the eyes of the maid and the hand of her mistress, there's a slave component here in our passage that we need not miss. Somehow in this cry for mercy, there's a, a look backwards to what it was like to be a slave and to understand that this condition of slavery somehow has something incorporated into this cry for mercy. Now, you give me far too long. I had a, a week where I didn't preach, and so I've had two weeks to study this and search it. And I'm, if, I, if I'm a bit long today, that may be why I don't give the preacher two weeks to study. It just gets longer and longer as he goes. Turn me to Exodus chapter 21. I want to show you a passage of Scripture. I'm not going to preach the whole passage. I just want to show you this, lest you get scared. Exodus chapter 21 verses 1 through 6. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he'll go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife of her children shall be her master's and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, 
my wife and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. Shall serve him forever. We must understand there's a slave component in this cry for mercy because now you're standing before the throne where Jesus sits. This, he's sitting on this mercy seat. And you're going to cry out to him three times for mercy. And when you see this Exodus passage about this, this slave who had been a slave for, for six years. And now by law he's, he's allowed to go free. Can I tell you something? God's not going to make you be his. You can go. Well, that's harsh, isn't it? You can leave if you want to leave. You can stop if you want to stop. If you don't want to come back, you don't have to come back. There is a point where, where he would say, okay, go. And you would be free. Do what you want. Live how you want. Go where you want. But why would you stay there with this master? Why would you choose? He says he would. Verse 5. He, uh, if the servant plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go free. The reason he would say that is because he has got to know this master that he's served, he's worked for for six years. And he's learned what kind of man this is. And he's learned this. I'm better off to be a slave working for this man than free not knowing this man. This, this master is merciful. And we've just learned this about Jesus. If you stood before Jesus throne today, his seat of mercy, and he said to you, he said to me, John, you can go free. If you don't want to be my disciple, if you don't want to serve me, you can go free. Just go on and go. I would have to look at him sitting there on that seat of mercy, and I would have to declare, my God is a God of mercy. He forgave me of all my sins. When I didn't deserve him to forgive me, he forgave me of all my sins. He was a propitiation for me. He took the wrath of God for me so that I can stand before him today, and he's not mad at me. He should be, but he's not. He should be, but he's not. And I can stand before him today, and I know without a doubt, God loves me. He loves me. My master is merciful. To better understand what kind of master he is, let's look at what's in the box. He's sitting on the chair he's sitting on. Remember, it's the Ark of the Covenant. What is inside that box? Under, If you lift that mercy seat, you said, Jesus, pardon me, just get up for just a minute. And he got up, and you lift the lid of that mercy seat, do you remember what's inside the box? First of all, inside the box is the law of God. Those two stone tablets whereon are written the Ten Commandments of God. And I know this about the law of God. It is perfect. It is true. It is right. It is everything that justice is meant to be. And I cannot keep it. And I cannot do it. And I have not, nor will I. But Jesus did it all for me. The master who's sitting there on that seat has completed all the details of that law. How much so? The New Testament says every jot and tittle, every T is crossed and every I is dotted. That's how much he did the law of God for me. The second thing you find in that box is the, the rod of Aaron, that rod that was placed there in the Holy of Holies. Do you remember the story from the Old Testament? They were fussing about God's leaders and why does Moses and Aaron get to lead? We should all be leaders. And Moses says, okay, all the leaders, bring your stick. They all had walking sticks, a dead stick that they carried around that they walked with. So bring your stick and put it in the holy place tonight. Let's see what happens. Just an old dead stick that has no life in it. They put it in the holy place. And the next morning, Moses, or Aaron's rod has bloomed. It has flowers and buds on it. A dead stick came to life. The fulfillment of that story in the Old Testament is the New Testament with the story of Lazarus when Lazarus died. And everybody's mad at Jesus and they're saying, if you'd have been here, he'd still be alive. 
And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the man that was once dead in there now comes to life and comes out. What's the point? This rod that's in that seat where Jesus sits proves that he's the kind of master who can bring life where there's been death. And praise God as I'm standing before him, I know he did that in me. He brought life where there was no life. All of a sudden there was life. The third thing that's in that ark is the golden pot of manna. You remember how God provided food for Israel for 40 years. 40 years he provided for them. Every morning they had to get up early and go out and find the manna that God had placed on the ground just like the dew. And if I looked at that master who was sitting on that throne, I would be reminded that God has provided for me every day since I've known him. He's my provider. The Bible says it this way. He is my Jehovah Jireh. My provider. The Bible says, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. If you know what kind of God you serve, you don't want to leave him. And you won't leave him. The greatest grief I face as a pastor is watching men and women fall away from God and turn their back on When I say that statement to you out loud, I have specific names of specific people rolling through my head who turn their back on the Lord. Our God is a good master. And he sits there on the seat of mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 through 10. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled with God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant, and became in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those in earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God who at various times and various ways spoken, times passed by the fathers and by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son Jesus, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you're going to cry for mercy, you need to know where you need to stand for cry for mercy. You need to stand before the throne of mercy where Jesus sits. And if you stand before the throne of mercy, you, you would see Jesus sitting there and you would say to Jesus like this slave of Exodus did, I'm going to stay forever. I don't want to walk away. I, I don't even pray it. God, don't let me walk away. I want to stay forever. You've been a good master. You're a good king. You're a merciful father. I want to stay forever worshiping you before your throne, before your throne of mercy. If you're going to ask for God of mercy, you need to stand before Jesus, the, the Lord of mercy, and you need to cry out to him for mercy because he is the place of mercy. And so mercy is requested in this soul three times. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Close with one thought. If we're going to be a church after God's own heart, we will be a church filled with mercy. If we're not a church filled with mercy, something's wrong with us and we're not like Jesus. God, have mercy on us. Would you, would you pray? Stay with me and pray. Stay with me and bow your head. Would you just begin to ask God for mercy? Lord, have mercy on me. Just pray that. 
Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Then would you praise him for his mercy? Bless him for his mercy. Give him honor for his mercy. For he sits on the throne of mercy forever and ever. Lord, our lives will pass away, and the place where we live won't even remember us. But the mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting. Your mercy lasts forever. Lord, help us as a church called Lighthouse to be a place of mercy where people can come and they don't feel that some other man, mere man, is looking down on them, but they fear, they fear the living God and see the mercy of God in this place. Let us be that kind of church, Lord, we pray, where the mercy of God is found. Where those who feel unloved can find the love of God. Those who feel unforgiven can find the forgiveness of God. And those who want to think by the devil's direction that you're mad at them when finally you actually love them so much. Father, we bless you for your word today. Help us, Lord, to find your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.